It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Waiting on AstraZeneca. I think every province is on its own timelines. Why the clock is ticking and more questions about who gets it first. Learning from COVID long haulers. Each story is absolutely unique. The BC Clinic helping patients on their long journey back to health. And deadly predators. For them to actually start attacking is definitely a shift that we've never seen before. The neighborhood on edge after a cougar kills a dog. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. The province accelerating the COVID vaccination booking program after a painfully slow start. The situation has improved so much. We're now ahead of the game and ready to jump to the next age group early. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more. Keith, uh, Health Minister Adrian Dick says we are ready to move forward. Yes, indeed. Uh, some good news following, as Chris says, the confusion and delays started on the rollout on Monday. We now are processing enough people, and thanks to TELUS bringing in 600 call agents, we can move to the next group, which is people over between the age of 85 and 89, as of noon tomorrow, can start phoning your health authority call centers and book your vaccination appointment. This is unexpected, very good news. Health Minister making the, uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix making the announcement just a short time ago, and it puts the thanks squarely on the shoulders of TELUS reflects the fact that for the most part substantially uh, our uh, groups of people and our seniors over 90 have already booked their appointments reflects all the work that people have been doing and I want to in particular acknowledge the CEO uh, for TELUS Darren Entwistle who put his shoulder and his whole team's shoulder to the wheel over the last couple of days to, uh, to catch up and then go beyond what we had expected in terms of booking of appointments. So we're talking about 50,000 people who fall into that pool of, of uh, people over the age of 90, Indigenous elders over 65. Here's the current vaccination appointments update. You can see Fraser Health has more than 15,000. Where the real movement comes, Vancouver Coastal has really upped its game there, thanks to tell us again. Uh, again, starting off with just less than 400 on the first day, they're now at 7,343. And other health authorities, again, starting to perform quite well. So our total number, 37,661, only about about 12,000 left to go in that current group. And when you have 600 call agents sitting around, that 12,000 can be taken care of fairly quickly, which is why we're now moving to the 85 to 89 group starting at noon tomorrow. Call your health authority, get vac make that appointment, and get vaccinated soon. Nice to see uh, at least a little bit of progress being made. Keith, thank you. Yep. All right, BC's first allotment of tens of thousands of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine began arriving today. But the clock is already ticking on this batch. It's set to expire April 2nd. And as Richard Zussman reports, while other provinces will be giving shots by the end of the week in B.C., we're still not sure who will even be on the list. It arrived in Canada with much fanfare last week. Now the question is, when will the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine be in the arms of British Columbians? In the absence of communication, anxiety grows. And we've seen this, this angst that has been within the communities. The province announcing Wednesday it's finally arrived. 
BC set to receive 68,000 doses of the easy-to-move vaccine, but time's running out, more than half of those doses expiring April 2nd, and no word on how much will actually be here this week. I don't want to see a single dose expire. We need to get those into arms. So why we don't have a list, why we don't know what our distribution channels are, is beyond me. Ontario Premier Doug Ford announcing Wednesday eligible Ontarians 60 to 64 years of age can get an AstraZeneca shot starting Friday. Nearly 200,000 doses set to be administered in 325 pharmacies, including in Toronto. As for British Columbia, pharmacists here don't even know when they will be part of the COVID vaccination plan. Pharmacists are ready to to, to, to participate in the, the vaccine rollout program as, as soon as possible. Alberta already booking AstraZeneca appointments aimed at 64-year-olds. In BC, we know the first part of the shipment will go to outbreak response in high-risk industries like food processing. We're hoping we can start to do things on location. And uh, there's a lot of sectors where, you know, social distancing is almost impossible. You know, some of the meat production facilities. Then by next week, the province will be aiming AstraZeneca to essential workers. Separate from the age-based immunization, meaning transit drivers, teachers, police officers, and many others are still waiting to find out when it will be their turn. Well, we support the ethical and equitable distribution of the vaccine based on the science, and we think based on those criteria that transit operators around the province uh, should be prioritized. A vaccine panel is currently setting the priority list for bus drivers and others, and it won't be publicly released until next week. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, the holding pattern continues in this province when it comes to our COVID-19 numbers. Let's take a look. We have 531 new cases. That brings BC's total to 85,650. 4,861 cases are currently active. There are 244 people in hospital and one more person has died. More than 355,000 doses of vaccine have now been administered. The B.C. Green Party is calling on the government to do a better job of tracking COVID-19 long haulers, people who have sometimes debilitating symptoms for months after their diagnosis. As Aaron MacArthur reports, Green leader Sonia Furstenau says statistics out of the U.S. are cause for concern. If I just try and clean the house too much, I'll be in bed for, you know, days or weeks. So Katie McLean has been dealing with COVID symptoms since September. Around New Year's, she felt like she was finally starting to turn the corner. A relapse has pushed her back almost to square one. It's been, you know, a very humbling experience to be chronically ill for this long and be unable to perform daily activities, be unable to work, be unable to um, exercise. Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau has been urging government to more fully track the data on long haulers to better understand the scope of the pandemic. I think there is a larger gap in data collection and as well in sharing data with the public. So in the midst of a health emergency, uh, transparency and communication isn't a nice to have, it's essential. BC has launched a website to help people manage post-COVID symptoms and a handful of clinics are now open to study the long-term symptoms. So far, more than 200 people have registered. Doctors at this point are unsure how many people need treatment. We're more interested in some of the functional outcomes. You know, people returning to work, are people returning to school? Can they take care of themselves, right? And that's what we're following in our clinic. Long COVID syndrome isn't an official diagnosis in Canada yet. 
People unable to go back to work are at risk of being denied extended health benefits or losing their jobs. A lot of long haulers are really dealing with you know, dire financial circumstances. Out of roughly 85,000 cases in B.C., about 79,000 are considered recovered. Numbers that don't tell the full story. Some people will be dealing with the effects of this virus for years to come. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Friends and family of a murdered Burnaby woman had their chance to speak directly to her killer today as they presented their victim impact statements at his sentencing hearing. Nicole Hasselman's ex-boyfriend pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, and today disturbing details were revealed of the night he killed her. Disturbing video was played in the sentencing hearing for Jan Popel, who pleaded guilty in the second-degree murder of 34-year-old Nicole Hasselman, who also went by Bertrello. Popel recorded a one-minute cell phone video in his car after stabbing Nicole 47 times. You hear her struggling to breathe while Popel says, I'm a psychopath and I hate myself and it's the worst thing. You just took, took, took from me. I gave you everything I had. You disrespected me. Loved ones walked out of court in tears. Her brother yelled at Popel, watch the video, lift your head up. Global BC is not pursuing any request to obtain the video. I trust that the Crown played the video because they believe that this is what's going to bring awareness to the severity of the situation and the person that Jan was. And I believe that that came across, um, but it's something we're never going to be able to unsee. Nicole and Popel had been dating off and on. He was jealous of her relationship with another man. Popel doctored photos to make it appear that man was picking up sex trade workers. He looked through her text messages and once shoved her. In November 2018, Popel picked Nicole up, stabbing her multiple times. He then went home, leaving her dying in the car. He went on his RBC account, paid some bills, bought a dishwasher at Home Depot, a TV at Best Buy, and emailed his resignation to Remax. A couple of hours after the stabbing, he sped along the Barnett Highway and crashed into two light poles. Nicole was ejected from the car and pronounced dead in hospital. He didn't just kill my daughter, but he killed my entire family. And I hope that one day... I know on this life he won't pay for it, but he will pay when he goes up there. God will punish him, whatever he done to my beautiful daughter. Nicole was a mother who worked with special needs students at Templeton Secondary in Vancouver. Second degree murder has a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole between 10 and 25 years. Crown is asking for 15 years of parole ineligibility. The hearing continues on Thursday. Grace Key, Global News. Another public appeal today for any information in the case of a missing North Vancouver woman. 35-year-old Fatima Abdullali was last seen just after noon, February 26th, near Marine Drive and Capilano Road. Some of her belongings were found in the area of Haywood Park shortly after she was reported missing. North Vancouver RCMP say there's no indication at this point that foul play is involved in her disappearance. Port Moody pet owners and parents are being warned to be extra careful after a cougar attacked and killed the dog late last night. It happened just before one in the morning when the dog's owner took their pet outside. As John Hua reports, frighteningly, the pooch was on its leash when the cougar pounced. The owner did everything right. His small dog was on a leash. They stuck to a path at the center of this Port Moody townhouse complex. The cougar came out of not even the forest, but just out of a, a bush. 
out of the blue. The predator didn't make a sound before it pounced on the family pet from behind. Unfortunately, her injuries were just too severe once they took her to the animal hospital and she's gone. It's very sad. BC conservation officers on scene investigating the deadly cougar attack. It happened at around 11 o'clock on Tuesday night. The man and his dog likely caught the cougar and by surprise, and that's what initiated the, the prey-driven attack on the dog. Conservation quick to differentiate this attack from other recent incidents reported around the Tri-Cities area. <coughs> Big cats captured on camera in broad daylight outside an Anmore home. A juvenile cougar euthanized after following a teenager walking home in Port Coquitlam. This area is known to have a lot of wildlife, so having a cougar in this area is definitely less brazen. With evidence of the attack still visible, people living in the area are very concerned. Quite unnerving, I mean, not only for people with animals, but young children. As for this pet-oriented community, residents say they are heartbroken by the loss of the 14-pound dog that was beloved by their neighbours. Very emotional, as I said. It's uh, devastating. I can't imagine their, our family and something like that happened to witness that. As BC Conservation continues its search for the cougar, owners are being told to keep their cats indoors and their dogs on an even shorter leash. John Hua, Global News. Precious metals leading to a major spike in crime. The theft of catalytic converters from all kinds of vehicles has skyrocketed. The reason for the dramatic increase and what you can do to protect yours. Next on the News Hour. Tons of RCMP gear incinerated. Why it was better to burn it than recycle it. Coming up on the News Hour. And working less is more. What might be the best argument yet for shortening the work week? Coming up later. Right now, though, the latest report from the B.C. Utilities Commission's inquiry into gas prices says motorists are still paying more at the pumps than is justified by economic conditions. It also found that one particular community is being gouged more than others. Ted Chernecki asked the B.C. government what it's going to do about it. For six months, gas prices in 11 cities were monitored in B.C. On average, the lower prices were in Vernon and the Okanagan the highest in Powell River and Squamish. Typically a little bit more expensive. It's kind of like a rule of thumb to try to fuel up while you're in Vancouver. The report notes that taxes collected in Metro Vancouver amount to about 52 cents a litre. In Squamish, it's only 39 cents. Yet, the average retail price for the last six months of 2020 was $1.27 a litre in Squamish, two cents higher than Vancouver's retail price of $1.25. In fact, in September and October, the price at the pump for gasoline in Squamish was a full five cents more than Vancouver. First of all, it proves uh, the, the fact, the sense that people have that, uh, that's, uh, that, that, that they were being gouged on those prices. Uh, I would hope, having had the light shone on them, the companies will reconsider their pricing policy. Uh, if they don't, then uh, I'll, I'll have to consider what steps uh, we'll take next. At least if you fill up in Vancouver, you know about 13 cents per litre is going to support public transit. Fill up in Squamish, and that money is probably ultimately headed into an oil tycoon's pocket somewhere in Texas. I love not paying for gas. I still have to pay for electricity, but um, much better just plugging in. Going all electric is one option, though it's a lot of money up front. To make this study, the Utilities Commission had to purchase data from private companies. 
But as of November 2020, BC's fuel price transparency regulations came into effect, where the Commission can require oil companies to provide regular reports. What we will be doing going forward, now we've got the power under the Act to collect our own data, we will be in a, we will be in a position to, uh, hopefully more flexible position to produce more reports from the data that we that we do have. Exactly what kind of information the oil companies will be willing to provide is still being negotiated. Ted Chernock, Global News. New numbers show the theft of catalytic converters has skyrocketed in recent years, especially in the lower mainland. On Tuesday, a man was found crushed to death under a car in Burnaby. Police believe he was attempting to steal a catalytic converter when the vehicle fell on him. And that's prompting questions about how to make it harder for thieves to turn the parts into profit. Amadagahi reports. Is BC in the midst of a catalytic converter theft crisis? worth more than gold. He's talking about palladium, one of the many precious metals this retired Vancouver police detective says crooks are after more than ever before. If you're getting 10 to 15 times more money for that precious metal, then it becomes a worthwhile endeavor to steal it. Stripping the cat from a parked car is a lucrative business for thieves who can do the job in less than one minute at times. The latest numbers are striking. In 2020, there were 508 catalytic converter thefts reported to ICBC in Surrey alone. And once you take a look at the full picture, this type of theft in BC has increased a thousand percent since 2017. The Surrey RCMP property crime target team has made this a priority. So absolutely, you know, we are going to be focusing on this type of theft. Police are suggesting a few things you can do to avoid falling victim, like parking in well-lit areas, labeling your car's catalytic converter and always reporting a theft. Obviously, uh, this is concerning. The province says it's crucial for scrapyards to record what and who they buy from. I could find out who brought it to us when and what we paid for it. Something we learned this Vancouver business takes pride in doing. Meanwhile, even the opposition is quick to waive any ideas surrounding an outright ban on the purchase of used catalytic converters. Perhaps uh, stepped up enforcement in times like this when these prices are high. Uh, perhaps the province or somebody can put some more resources into monitoring these things to try and, and uh, uh, mitigate that uh, the incident of theft. For now, it seems no one has the simple solution to a problem that could clearly cost taxpayers millions each year. Amadagahi, Global News. Up ahead, deleting old electronics. A lot of peace of mind knowing that peace our things are going it, to be yes. destroyed properly. The best way to dispose of old electronics that might still hold your personal information. And COVID claims helping you get the most out of your return at tax time. Extra busy here on the east-west connector for eastbound traffic near number 7 road. Crews are on scene to a two-car crash. Traffic is slow from Knight Street on the approach. Connect Hearing has strict safety protocols in place. Take your first steps towards better hearing. Book a free appointment with Canada's number one physician-referred hearing healthcare provider today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 91 and Number 7 Road in Richmond. The right information in the wrong hands can do some serious damage. Scammers are able to steal thousands of dollars with just a few personal details. Which is why your used cell phone or old laptop is particularly seductive to fraudsters. Nadia Stewart has more. 
getting rid of that old laptop or electronic device safely is top of mind for these folks. Showing up at Abbotsford Police Department's headquarters where safe disposal was made even easier. I've been saving the one computer for 12 years because I used a credit card to book a trip for a friend. Just personal information and all that stuff, right? So why not uh, get it destroyed properly? Just a lot of peace of mind knowing that our things are going to be destroyed properly. This is an annual event for the local force, made available to the public during the month of March, which is also Fraud Prevention Month. You have an old computer that doesn't work anymore and you want to get rid of it or you want to ensure that that information is deleted or that this device will for sure be destroyed, you can bring it here, watch it happen. This is not a new concept. Electronics must be safely discarded so fraudsters don't access the personal data so quickly available on them. But it is a lesson worth repeating. You can just do a factory reset, which pretty much just erases all of your personal files, but it keeps the operating system there. Carla Laird of the Better Business Bureau says even when handing over a unit to a family member, it's important to ensure the unit is free of personal data. But for a generation that's grown up with this message. What's really adorable is where my mom used to lecture me about clutching my purse closer so nobody steals my information. I'm now lecturing her about digital safety. They're now teaching another generation about the consequences of not taking it seriously. I would never in my wildest dreams just throw away a bank statement in the mail, right? I want to make sure that the data on there is shredded to a million pieces so that people can't access my personal information. While this is a one-day event, this kind of recycling is available through other organizations throughout the Lower Mainland. Nadia Stark, Global News. Well, this tax season is looking very different compared to years past because of the pandemic. Many of the benefits Canadians received are taxable. That is true, but not all of them, which does make things a little bit more complicated this year. We'll bring in Consumer Matters reporter Anne Drua with a little help tonight, Anne. Thanks, Chris. The deadline to file your taxes is around the corner, and the CRA is urging Canadians to file early to get your refund faster and to avoid delays. But before you begin, here are a few things you should know. For Canadians who received the Canada Emergency Response Benefit or CERB during the pandemic, you'll have to report it when filing your taxes. There was no tax withheld at a source. So that means uh, whatever you receive, you need to report all the income. And so there was an additional income tax you need to pay. Other available benefits like the Canada Recovery Benefit, the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, and the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit, as well as the Canada Emergency Student Benefit, have had 10% tax withheld at source. But most people will still owe some taxes. If you were receiving $1,000, you only received 900 So there was $100 of tax deducted at source. So that will definitely help. Tax experts say the amount of tax you pay on the taxable benefits depends on a variety of factors. This income will be added to your overall income, right? So no matter um, how much your income was, then your total tax liability depends on your total net income, taxable income, and depends on on which tax bracket you are in. Some of the one-time federal emergency benefits which won't be taxed include the one-time Canada Child Benefit, the one-time payment because of a disability, the one-time payment of the GST, and the one-time payment of the old age security pension. Those one-time payments, um, those were not taxable, so you don't have to report it on your tax return at all. 
If you work from home during the pandemic, there are two methods to claim home office expenses. The new temporary flat rate method and the detailed method. Under the temporary flat rate method, you can claim $2 per day for each day worked at home up to a maximum of $400. And then there is the detailed method. If you think this is more beneficial, you can claim this detail method and claim all the expenses you actually uh, incurred. Canadians using this method will need a special form. For more details on how to claim these expenses and other tax-related questions, visit the Canada Revenue Agency website. And the deadline to file your taxes is April 30th. For self-employed taxpayers, the deadline is June 15th. If you need help filing your taxes, you may be able to reach out to a tax clinic in your area. You'll find that information on the Government of Canada website at canada.ca under the category of taxes. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. New data from Moneris shows where and when Canadians spent money during the pandemic. In B.C., we saw an overall increase of 123% in bike services and sales. Lawn and garden stores saw a boost of nearly 70% to their business. But it wasn't always spend, spend, spend. Across the country, sales dropped 32% in April. Tourism saw a 62% hit, but business was up at golf courses, swimming pools, and hardware stores. And with the onset of colder weather, fireplace sales surged by 22%, while home furnishings sales climbed by 20%. Monera says Canadians appear to be expecting another summer of restrictions and travel bans because boat rentals, bike and RV sales are already up. Let's hope there's a little more freedom this mm-hmm. summer. We'll see how it all shakes down. Up ahead, no time to waste tackling an eating disorder crisis. It's happened very quickly and it's very severe. A mother fights for her daughter who's forced to wait months for treatment. And what RCMP did with seven tons of surplus uniforms and other gear. I think there are some questions that need to be answered here. This was a high-risk, high-reward strategy. So we wanted to set the record straight. How do you grow as a human being if you're not going to open your ears and listen? Traffic is nice and steady in both directions over here on Highway 99 to and from the Massey Tunnel. A much better option right now than the East-West Connector, which is dealing with a crash. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Wisson in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Nova Scotia RCMP have incinerated nearly seven tons of surplus gear, including uniforms and body armor. The decision to dispose of it by burning comes 11 months after a gunman dressed as an RCMP officer killed 22 people in rural Nova Scotia. Global's Elizabeth McSheffrey reports. Nova Scotia RCMP confirmed this is the first time they've used incineration as a way to dispose of surplus gear. That's in part because it could be done safely during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also because it guarantees that gear can't be used in the future for criminal activities. The incineration in this case is considered a complete form of destruction. So there's nothing left over and there's no possibility of the, u- the uniform being used in any way, shape or form ever again. 
Between March 6th and 8th, nearly seven tons of kit and clothing were burned. That includes uniform shirts, pants, boots, body armor, and more. Um, when you think about the amount of kit that RCMP members have and uh, the amount of kit they wear on a daily basis, it's not significant for 15 pounds of kit to come from one person. Last April, a Mountie uniform and replica RCMP cruiser helped an armed gunman evade capture while he murdered 22 people in rural Nova Scotia. In January, the federal government suspended the sale of all decommissioned RCMP vehicles. The Mounties have a policy of stripping down or destroying uniforms that are no longer in service. It is still legal to own those items, but the Mounties say they suspect that won't be the case for long, and that factored into this month's incineration. Um, the proposed legislation that uh, my understanding is forthcoming, um, that was taken into consideration um, to make sure we were within policy uh, with the destruction of the equipment. The decision to burn the kit and clothing also comes as the public inquiry into the tragedy opens new offices in Halifax and Truro. Commissioners are now accepting new applications to participate in the inquiry online. Elizabeth McSheffrey, Global News, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. A group of several dozen people marched along part of the Trans Mountain Pipeline route to show their opposition to the controversial project. The march began near Holmes Creek this afternoon on the Coquitlam-Burnaby border where Trans Mountain crews are now clearing trees and preparing for the pipeline installation. The group then marched to the Watch House, part of the long-standing protest camp on Burnaby Mountain not far from Trans Mountain's tank farm. The $12 billion-plus pipeline expansion is expected to be completed by the end of 2022. Now to a pandemic-era phenomenon we first told you about on Monday. A sharp rise in young patients diagnosed with eating disorders across the province. Tonight, another family sharing their story about the difficulties of getting access to life-saving treatment as their child's life hangs in the balance. Sarah McDonald explains. It's happened very quickly and it's very severe. She doesn't want to be identified to protect her child's privacy, but this Lower Mainland mother is speaking publicly about her family's battle navigating anorexia nervosa and the province's healthcare system. I'm, I'm terrified every day. I've been like, you know, when you have a, a newborn and you go and check, at them, check on them when they're sleeping at night to make sure they're still breathing. I've been doing that, you know, twice a night. Except her daughter is 18 years old, a once star athlete and college student now near death, with no treatment options in sight, dropping 30 pounds in just five months, though still told she'll have to wait at least six to get care. She doesn't have six months. You know, if she, if she loses, I think, I think we're probably, you know, five pounds away from her having an emergency hospitalization. And her story is far from unique, though apparently not urgent in the eyes of the province, even as medical professionals sound the alarm on a concerning pandemic-era trend. With the pandemic, I'm just overwhelmed with the number of kids that are coming to me with suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, very depressed, very anxious. Mental illness in youth that, according to Dr. Rachel Bright, is manifesting as anorexia in unprecedented rates. With the pandemic, it has been a perfect storm of not only more cases, um, but also we've already had lack of resources. And that doesn't seem to be improving, even as wait lists grow. The health minister offering this. Many people who deal with eating disorders have other um, conditions as well that they deal with. So we have added um, some significant resources 
to, for those with eating disorders during the pandemic in terms of supports for primary care. Something those witnessing and suffering the effects of the disease find hard to believe, with patients only prioritized in cases where death is imminent. But then you're dealing with someone who's almost dead. So it's kind of like, like, like saying, oh, you know what, we're not going to treat your cancer until it's stage four, and then we're going to try something on you. Wasting precious time, many families desperately waiting for treatment fear they don't have. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Coming up, consideration for the 30-hour work week. Why it could pay off for businesses who want to keep their employees fresh. And the BC basketball talent getting some serious NBA interest. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Getting lighter and lighter behind uh, oh. Gordo these days. It'll be even lighter next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. We change our clocks to next week, that's for sure. And look at this. It's like a perfect rainbow off in the distance there. All right. Good evening, everyone. We did have a little bit of snow across parts of the province today as a cold front swung across the region. We didn't feel it here across the south coast. Lots of blue sky. But this was Monty Lake, which is uh, just north of the Kelowna region. Laurel Jones sending us this. And she said it was just coming down at one point this morning. But it was really spotty and it didn't last long. Whereas across the south coast, we saw some clouds and it tried to rain, but we really didn't amount, it really didn't amount to much. This is Virga where it evaporates before it actually hits the ground. And we saw a fair amount of that. You can even see it here in this shot from Roberts Creek. Thank you to Carly for that stunning purpley shot there. So overnight tonight, the skies are going to remain clear. That means we'll drop down in temperature minus one across Metro Vancouver. Could be a bit frosty tomorrow morning, but for the most part, you're going to feel the cold. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine on the way. Even into Friday, we're expecting mainly sunny skies, just a bit more cloud cover. This front that you see here will target the north and central coast come Friday and northern parts of Vancouver Island. But at this point, it doesn't look like it's going to track further south into our region. So what was going to be a wet weekend may not be so much. So tune back in tomorrow. We'll have a better idea about our weekend. But in the very least, at South Coast tomorrow, sunny skies. Friday, we'll see a little bit more cloud cover, but still terrific conditions. Cold in the morning, though, but we'll warm up nicely in the afternoon to highs of about 12 degrees. Here's your central windows weather window for today. This is Craig Bay, which is not too far from Parksville. And Iona sending us this. This is the herring fishing going on. Lots of birds out there. Mm. It's wow. a smorgasbord. It's like a Hitchcock right. movie. We got ahead of ourselves <laughs> a little in bit. the last promo before the commercial break. I was so excited about the AMAC story that I promoted it, but it's not running until tomorrow. Tomorrow. But I'm glad you yeah. promoted No, I no. Mean, we I, didn't, I didn't specify when it, right? it was coming. I just said it's coming up. If you say it's coming up, it could be now, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week. You're not wrong. Exactly. It could be 2024. It's still coming up. (laughs) We want people to watch, like, every day. We will talk about Fardaz Amac tomorrow, who, of course, is from Richmond and is the best rebounder in the NCAA and maybe the next BC player to be in the NBA. Uh, We're going to talk about the Canucks tonight, though. They are playing at 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, against the Montreal Canadiens, second straight game against the Habs. So late. Late game. bedtime. (laughs) Past your bedtime. All right, thanks, Squire. And could the 40-hour work week become a thing of the past? How cutting hours can boost productivity?
This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Canucks fans staying up late tonight. Yeah. Late by pandemic standards. Right. Nine o'clock is the new midnight in the pandemic year. Is it really? Yeah. In my life. I wonder why all the lights are off in my neighborhood. Okay, so the uh, Canucks got closer to the Montreal Canadiens with that shootout win the other night. Uh, What they really need, though, is winning the game and the other team not getting a consolation prize point. That's the thing about sitting out of a playoff spot during a time where you only play against division rivals. You need two, and they need to get zero. Now, you would have to think that tonight's game might be as tight-checking as the previous game. The Canucks knew they had to get better defensively after that fatal February, and also they had to get better defensively because they don't have Elias Pettersson right now because of an injury. The Habs had to do the same thing because, of course, the way they played last month got their coach fired. Uh, Tonight's game is 8 o'clock, and that's 70s type of hockey. That's the time they used to start Canuck games at way, way back. I wasn't even alive then, but I was told way, way back in the 70s. Uh, Jay is at the arena for a preview. On the weekend, the Vancouver Canucks completed their unlikely two-game sweep of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Tonight, they'll try to repeat that performance against the Montreal Canadiens. Vancouver finding itself sitting fifth in the North Division and a win tonight over the Habs. And the Canucks are just a single point back of Montreal for that fourth and final playoff spot. Yeah, it's exciting for us. We're in a, we're in a good place right now. Um, things have been going well for us. I thought... I thought last game, uh, you know, we knew going into it, it was going to be a tight game, and it was. You know, we're going into these games knowing, feeling like it's a big game. We're into the second half now. Uh, we didn't get as many wins as we wanted in the first half. and um, You know, every game's important. On Monday, Travis Green told us he was hoping Elias Pettersson would rejoin the Canucks at some point this week. That is not going to happen. Pettersson's officially out at least another week with that undisclosed upper body injury that he suffered a week ago during games against the Winnipeg Jets. I don't think anybody expected the Canucks to go undefeated without Elias Pettersson in the lineup. There's no question, though, that Elias is missed, especially on the power play, which went 0-3 against the Montreal Canadiens on Monday, including that lackluster 5-on-3 power play opportunity. Now, following this morning's game day skate, the number one unit stayed on the ice for an additional 20 minutes working on formation and set piece one timers you know it's easy to try to play to score goals but committing to playing in the other end of the rink and and doing the hard things every shift all the little things I think that's our team's done a good job of that lately and and we've played with purpose and uh, we've done it for 60 minutes I mean you're never going to play perfect games Uh, we've had times where you know, we've been in our own zone, but we've defended hard. Our goalie's made a save, and, you know, you could probably look at both teams and every game that happens. And I think mentally we've been a little stronger in these last three games. So it's game four of the Vancouver Canucks five-game homestand. It appears that Thatcher Demko will start for the fourth straight game, which would mark seven of the last eight games that Demko has been between the pipes. From Rogers Arena, Jay Janower, Global Sports. It's Edmonton, it's Oilers, it's Ottawa, it's not good for Ottawa, it's straight down the middle, 
Well, that's a beautiful play by Devin Shore to Jujar Kara for a goal there to make it 2-0. And then watch uh, Leon Dreisaitl. I'll just do it myself. Straight through. Back of the net. He has four points in this game so far late in the second. Edmonton is embarrassing the Sens 6-0. The XFL is now partially run by Dwayne Johnson. The Rock, who of course had a brief stop in the CFL with the Stampeders before he went to a wrestling career and then a successful movie career. Now his football league and his old football league, the CFL, are talking about maybe working closely together. What that means, nobody is really saying. We cannot yet smell what The Rock is cooking. Could they merge the two leagues together? Anything's possible. The XFL was set to restart in the spring of 2022, but those plans are on hold until they talk with the Canadian Football League, which, of course, is hoping to play this year. Well, here is what we know for sure about the Vancouver Whitecaps' upcoming season. Their home base is going to be Salt Lake City until the border reopens. Their first real game will be against Portland on April 18th in Utah. They do hope to get a couple of exhibition games in. Then they'll go down to Florida and play Toronto FC on April 24th. Like the Raptors, the Toronto FC squad is going to spend the first part of the season in the Sunshine State. The full MLS schedule is not out yet. We just know the start of it. And we know where the Whitecaps' home base will be, as we said, which Mark DeSantos is thankful for. And, you know, we're very thankful for the people in Utah and Salt Lake that have helped uh, the process of us going there. And now everything's going to work. But it's not home, you know. It's not home. I'm ready as a coach to spend all season over there. Uh, But I hope, I hope things change in a way that allows us to be in front of our fans. Lionel Messi in Barcelona against Paris Saint-Germain. Barcelona got knocked out of Champions League, but Lionel Messi did provide this for us to talk about. Left foot. And look at the movement on that ball. Magnificent from Lionel Messi. It is magnificent. From the goaltender, well, actually, whoever's in the net's perspective. There you go. They still lost an aggregate 5-2 to Paris Saint-Germain. Liverpool moved on today. And look who's back. After 405 days on the sideline, it's Roger Federer. He had that knee problem. Took him over a year to get back on the court, but at the Qatar Open, he won today against Dan Evans in his one-handed backhand is still working rather nicely. Pospisil lost to Shapovalov today, and 2-4 uh, and four is BC's record now at the Briar. That's it. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Jay Durant for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Thanks very much, Sophie. We have an amazing story of lost and found. 16-year-old Hunter Hoffman was rafting on the Coquitlam River last summer when he ended up in the water and lost his cell phone. You won't believe where it was found and who found it. Plus, traffic was blocked in Burnaby this afternoon by another protest, what the issue was and why the demonstration was held today. Those stories coming up tonight at 11. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Jay. So what if TGIF could become TGI Thursday? The push to shorten the work week. Next.
Well, it's a familiar feeling on Fridays for a lot of us, a boost in mood looking forward to those two days off. But as more people struggle during the ongoing pandemic, those two days sometimes feel like they're not enough. So what if they were to become three? Global's Noor Ibrahim takes a closer look. Are your work weeks getting more and more difficult to get through? Well, what if they were shortened to 30 hours instead of 40? A 2020 poll by Angus Reid Institute suggests a majority of Canadians like that idea, 53% to be exact. The theory is a shorter work week with more downtime in between means employees can return more rested and be more productive. Associate Professor Yu Jian has some thoughts on the data we have so far. Most of the research findings are based on surveys or correlational studies. We don't have a firm conclusion about the causality. But that hasn't stopped some organizations from giving the concept a go. In 2019, Microsoft Japan implemented a four-day work week with the same pay, and they say their employees' productivity rose 40%. But while Jan says it's debatable whether a 40-hour work week is an outdated concept, there is evidence to suggest a traditional work environment is. I don't think organizations will probably look at that 40-hour work week per se. I think we're going to be looking at how can we have more flexible time core working hours, um, how can we enable people to feel connected to their purpose at work. Michelle Chambers works with leaders to develop strategies for success and employee empowerment. She says COVID-19 has brought restructuring and work flexibility to the forefront of many conversations. We're going to have a hybrid workforce moving forward. There's no question. Both experts say working from home has benefited many. Think less time commuting and more time with family. But both experts also say that technology brings a downside if you're not allowed to disconnect. One important component of work recovery is actually um, work detachment, meaning that we detach ourselves from either doing any work tasks or thinking about Chambers says employers can start by having honest and safe conversations, setting clear and realistic work expectations, and addressing diversity, equity, and mental health shortcoming. Nudie Ibrahim, Global News. I'm going to test out the theory um, this week, and tomorrow oh. will be my Friday. Excellent. So you know. <laughs> right, well, let us know how it goes. <laughs> we'll still be here. I have no complaints about my work week. Uh, what about the weather, though? Let's find out from Christy before we sign off. Sure, so cold tonight, I'll tell you, minus one as our low overnight, and it's already starting to get very cold, but it will rebound. Now that we're having longer days, we have the chance of really warming up now that we see the sun. Cool. Get inside and warm up. (laughs) And have a good night, everyone. See you tomorrow.